Well, I hope you all had a good sleeping earlier. Uh, pardon for the, uh, the delay earlier. Finish the talk in the morning over at the Buddhist Fellowship. Uh, give a talk on Bhavana. What do you practice? So we finish at around 12, and then uh, I, I ask whether, is, whether anyone has like questions, like we have time for one question. <laughs> and the question was, what to do with doubt? <clears throat> that the person uh, in the past had like 10 out of 10 confidence in Chippa Jam, you know, Buddha Dharma, but over the years, he has declined and she's doubtful. Uh, like, for example, whether even the Buddha himself existed. All kinds. And so, before you know it, it was 12 30. <laughs> yeah. So, when you arrived, it was 12 56 or so. So, it was having lunch. So. <clears throat> uh, so, let's see. Uh, who is on my right? Anybody who is new? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Mike for her. Tell us your name and uh, how you got to know about this group. Yes. Uh, my name is uh, Okay, okay. Oh, Shiming Lan. Um, is that Anybody else on my life? 
think the rest are all season parking holders. Okay, on my right, anybody who is... Uh, I think they have introduced before. Uh, let me see, on my right, anybody who is new. Uh, ah, yes. This is the first time. Sorry, my name is Wukyu. I've been with Pandey for maybe 40 years. Wow. <laughs> Last time when you were here, I enjoyed listening to your talk. But today, by chance, I came across this ah. Thank you very much. Good. Um, uh, my name is Ken. I've been in Buddhist library for quite some time. So, the first time she moved me and he said, why not cause a reason? So I've been in Buddhist library, I'm not a new year. Yes, you are not in here. <laughs> I've seen your before. <laughs> yeah, welcome, welcome. Welcome not to the Buddhist library, <laughs> uh, but to the SGC, yeah, Spiritual Group Coordination, uh, where we have short puja, uh, short meditation. Just now, maybe not so short for now. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, not so short. Yeah. So last week, last week we started on uh, a topic, a topic that is perhaps um, quite close to heart, uh, a topic which is perhaps uh, not something that everybody is comfortable to talk about. Yeah. It's called phasing to death. Yeah. Phasing, phasing up to death. So last week we touched on the topic, uh, and I highlighted how there are many ways to look at it. Yeah, and there are two angles. One is our own imminent uh, departure. Yeah. Uh, the other one is that of our loved ones. <coughs> or perhaps it should be death of others. Yeah. So last week we, we touched on uh, our own, then I check uh, some of the teachings where the Buddhas, the Buddha shared how uh, if a person lives his life uh, indulging in the senses, then when aging, sickness, and death comes, uh, our, we, we would fret, we would have fear, anxiety, yeah? uh, we would grieve yeah, as it happens. So then uh, uh, we touched on how perhaps we should uh, choose to live our life. Yeah? Facing death is not about how to die, but how to live, really. Yeah? Uh, to ask ourselves, um, how do we want to be known for and remembered by? And sometimes, when, if you really sit down and think about it, <coughs> uh, perhaps our life choices yeah, uh, may be quite different when we really think about uh, the mortality of ourselves. Just uh, the week that passed, I was over at the Buddha Tufalik Temple on Monday uh, afternoon and on Thursday morning and afternoon. I had uh, students from the French Business School, ESSEC, uh, over. Uh, I, 
I'd show them around in the temple and uh, share with them uh, bits and pieces of the Buddhist culture, the Buddhist uh, teachings, and a bit of Chinese culture as well. And along the way, I share with them about this question. Yeah? But how we oftentimes live our life with the assumption yeah, uh, about uh, about life, yeah, about death. Uh, the question came about because of the the, uh, the, the, the notion of Buddhist worldview. That most religions talk about how this world come about and how this world come to an end. Buddhism is less concerned about that. Yeah, we're more concerned about how suffering arises and how suffering ends. But then I also thought, um, but how, how, how or when, when we die can be important. Yeah. Because if, if we know that this world is going to come to an end next Wednesday, yeah, at 2.53 p.m., <laughs> I think the next few days for all of us will be quite different. But how do we know it's not? We don't really. Yeah. For that matter, how do we know that it's not tonight or tomorrow? Well, statistically speaking, it doesn't just happen like that. Yeah. There should be some precursors. There should be some uh, signs, so to speak. Sorry, statistics. Statistically speaking, based on what statistics? Well, so far, human, the whole world has been around. The whole world has been around. For any world-destroying uh, level of catastrophe, uh, there's usually some uh, some science, which is what a lot of the a lot of the different branches of sciences are involved in. Yeah, so that's the kind of science that I'm talking about. <laughs> But most of us are not involved in that. And that's an interesting thing because he he is uh is is are you still studying? Or you are doing uh regular study. Uh, yeah. doing your PhD masters, masters. masters, yeah. So you see for him doing his masters, uh he quite readily asked like based on what kind of statistics. <laughs> for most people when they hear this you just accept yeah. And the funny thing is that uh, most of us don't consciously think about what, what basis do we have for certain assumptions. In fact, we just make the assumption that uh, because we've been alive, so we shouldn't die tomorrow. We don't really sit down and do some survey to form a statistics. Really. We base it on our own anecdotal experience. That's, that's basically what most people base it on. And yet, we, we don't even um, sit down and tabulate our experiences really. We just tabulate it all inside here and mostly here. How we feel about it. Yeah. And that's why um, they say that while a lot of people are afraid of, uh, of asking questions, statistically, <laughs> it is safer than uh, walking in the streets or taking a car ride, yeah, because if it, the, the, the chance of you getting into a fatal accident in a car ride is much higher, like way higher than that happening for a plane ride. 
Yeah, but the, the thing is that most people don't live really by statistics. Yeah, we go by gut feel. And the gut feel tells us that um, we shouldn't be dying anytime soon. Yeah. And so that shapes, that is, in a way, uh, without us consciously thinking about it, a kind of worldview. The worldview that says we will not uh, perish tomorrow. Yeah. And likewise, others. That others will not perish tomorrow. Yeah. Because they are alive today, they should be alive tomorrow. But you may say, no, Sifu, what makes you say that? I don't actually have that opinion or view. Well, if we don't, then we shouldn't be surprised when we hear someone pass away. Take for example, and again, uh, we have a, I'm, I'm treading on very sensitive yeah, department here. Okay, so don't take it too personally, or or feel that I'm sort of like treating this very trivially. It is not trivial. Take for example, if you know a friend or relative who is having cancer, and the rest of the relatives without cancer. And if next week, if you hear the news that the, the, the relative who, have, who has cancer has passed away, versus if you hear another relative who doesn't have cancer passed away, which one will you be more surprised? Probably the one that doesn't have cancer. Because if you know that the person has cancer, then you are, we, we kind of like accept that, okay, can die. But then yet, at the same time, even if you do have cancer, you can also die. Yeah, you think about it. Just because you do have cancer, doesn't mean that you would not die. No, it doesn't mean that. Yeah, but yet, uh, having the doctor make the proclamation that this person has cancer, uh, kind of set something going. They were mentally sort of more ready, more prepared to face the fact that you know, this person, uh, this person's uh, days is numbered. So today we're going to uh, zoom in more into uh, first of all how to face the death of others, and then more specifically our loved ones under the uh, part on loved ones. I will share a bit on what we can do as well. So, the death of loved ones. Why focus on the death of loved ones, Sufu? Why don't we focus on the death of others, specifically terrorists? <laughs> Yeah. If you read the in the newspaper, oh, some terrorist cell was was uh, like identified, and and then uh, they, they, there was a shootout, and the terrorists were all killed. Yeah. How do you feel about it? How many of you, uh, on a scale of one to five, five being super sad, one being Super happy, three being neutral. Nuri, we are not capturing your, <laughs> your response. We will not send it to 
the internet. <laughs> so who is uh, who is super happy? Raise your hand. Five. Anyone? Have you see that terrorists have been killed? Okay. How about number one? Who is super sad? Wait, was it super happy or super sad? Number five or one? Five is sad. Five is sad. Uh. Okay, okay. Who is super sad? Number five. Okay, I'm glad that there are no terrorists in the side. How about number one? Super happy. Okay, let's how about number four? Right. Not really super sad, but maybe a bit or no. How about number two? Huh? Number huh? Number four. Number four. Uh, so, uh, don't feel so good. Uh, we'll come back to you in the morning. How about number two? A little bit happy. <laughs> Not super happy, but a little. Like, oh, good. How many? Okay. Uh, who would be neutral? Majority. And this is a standard Singapore bell curve. <laughs> yeah. uh, more correctly, the Singapore non-committal bell curve. Yeah. Singaporeans usually don't feel good to commit to you know, the extremes. We are quite the middle path people. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it may seem a bit biased, to go all the way to Paris. Yeah. Uh, but now if you consider, if it is the news of a friend, would the, would the results still be the same? Without even asking, I think it would be different. I think the bell curve will be shifted. Yeah. So a show of hands, who will be very happy? <laughs> a bit happy? <coughs> Neutral? Anyone? The fact that I say it is shifted and then you are under pressure not to raise your hand. <laughs> if we do a like anonymous poll, yeah, who knows? Maybe some of you will be neutral. Yeah? Is there anything wrong with being neutral if your friend passes away? Because I just say friend, I never say best friend. But does it mean that it's okay to be, be sadder if it's your best friend, but if it's just a friend, then, you know? Quite naturally, if I say, a bit sad if your friend passed away, yeah? And very sad. And perhaps depending on the individuals, and how close you are to that person, uh, the amount of grief you'll go through uh, will be proportionate. What about our loved ones? Loved ones compared to our friends, of course, quite naturally, we expect it to be much higher. Is there anyone who would be neutral to your loved ones thing, you know, like having passed away? Loved one? Neutral? No. A bit sad? A bit happy? A bit happy? <laughs> oh, I think we need to ask you now. <laughs> Why are you a bit happy when your loved one passed away? Ah, yes. You see? see, it's not always certain. When I ask you the question, it's actually a 
bit later. Yeah? Because I've prepped you beforehand. Yeah? You have been primed beforehand. Yeah? So you are quite naturally inclined to think that. And so sometimes you are blindsided. Because there are scenarios where if you learn one pass away, you may actually feel happy for the person. Yeah? Especially when the person has been suffering from illnesses, be it cancer or other forms. We may even feel that it's a relief for the person. And of course, um, if a person is healthy, the person is, you know, everything seems to be okay, then, and, and our loved ones pass away, we will feel not so good. So, why do you feel a bit sad when uh, when you read the news that the families have been killed. <laughs> yes, indeed. In Buddhism, when we say compassion, it is not just for good people. It's not just for nice people. It's for everyone. Yeah? All sentient beings. Yeah? May all beings be well and happy. Having the having anyone killed is, uh, in a way, easy solution, but not necessarily the solution. Yeah. Uh, so we respond very differently to different deaths you know, of others. Last week we talked about our own pending death. This week we talked about death of others, and then in particular, loved ones. So if we look at how we respond differently from the, the, the death of others, uh, what is the root cause? Yeah? Uh, even for loved ones, the response can be different, depending on the state that our loved one is in. In a way, we can bring in a dharma and say that, oh, uh, it's because we do not have equanimity. We do not have equanimity towards different individuals, different groups of individuals. And because we, of that, we relate to them differently. And so, when we die, uh, we respond differently. Yeah. Um, but I'm not here to do that, actually. Yeah. Uh, because most of us already know that. And the question to, to consider is, um, is there anything we can do about that? Or is, should we be doing anything about that? Yeah. So what if we feel a bit more or less? Perhaps before we even do anything about that, uh, the fact that we respond differently can tell us a lot about ourselves and the way we relate to others. Think about it. Um, I've often, often pondered about this. Uh, loved ones. Loved ones can mean many things. Can be our family, yeah? siblings, our parents. Uh, it can even include friends yeah, who are very dear to us. And of course, among all this, a very specific group will be the loved, loved ones. Yeah? Those whom we, we are, uh, like, what we call in love. 
So I often ask people, uh, the irony about our love is that the amount of grief we express seem to uh, indicate the amount of love that existed between the two persons. I imagine if we, if our our loved one, and it can be not just the loved one, but can be the family and so on. Other than the fact that if our loved one was suffering from cancer or illnesses, yeah, if let's say your one of your family member passed away, yeah, and or maybe somebody else's family member passed away, and you will go for the wake. If you go for the wake and you see all of them sitting around in kopi, chit-chatting, you know, smiling and laughing and cracking jokes, how do you feel? How do you feel about it? Would you, would you feel comfortable? No, isn't it? You may even feel a bit un uneasy. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. And especially, especially, if there are some who are grieving, yeah, and then cry, and there's, there's another group that is laughing. When you see this, such a contrast, who would you feel to be closer to the departed? The one who is laughing or the one who is crying? Huh? Crying or laughing? Crying. Quite naturally, huh? but why? Why do we feel that way? Yes. I think it's due to the culture. Due to the culture? What kind of culture? I think it's due to the culture that uh, let people I think I think it's due to the culture that um, when people pass away we feel we have to breathe. We feel that we have to breathe. When we think when people pass away. But why do we grieve when people pass away? Because there's a sense of loss. Loss of what? Loss of uh, the person being around with us and more. So the loss is felt by us or felt by them? Felt by us. So we are grieving over our, our loss. <laughs> huh? We're actually grieving over our loss of them. Well, we are sad for ourselves, really. <laughs> Think about it. Huh? When we, when, when someone passed away, what are we crying over? Are we crying for them or crying for ourselves? Long time ago, when I watched movies and the American shows, they always console each other and say, I'm sorry for the loss. Yeah. Or they just sometimes they say, I'm sorry. Yeah. And at some point, I asked myself, what are they sorry for? But then later on, I realized, oh, they are saying that they are sorry to hear the death about their loss. Yeah. But then when we, we ourselves cry, what are we crying over? Loss of what? Loss of that person? Permanent loss of that person? 
but what exactly do we lose? We lose the experience of the person, the interaction of that person. Whether it's a loss for that person or not, we, we, we don't really know. But what if you know that the person has been reborn in the Dewa realm? Yeah. In that split second when the person passed away, you know, Dewas were there to welcome him or her, and then like, hi, I'm your chaperone for today. Yeah. Please join me to be born in the Dewa, the realm of uh, infinite radiance. Let's go. <laughs> you know, and then they spend one whole day touring the facilities. You know, uh, introducing to the who's who. Oh, this is the other dewa. That is the other dewa. And this dewa, in particular, he, he met the Buddha. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, the family members are here crying. What? What are we crying over? But you're right. It's not that you're wrong. You're right. A lot has to do with culture. Yeah? And culture is not something that you sit down, attend a course and learn. Yeah? It's something that, that permeates us. Sometimes it's, it's because of what you see others do. Sometimes it's the mindset. Yeah? But culture is not something that you sit down, attend a course, and then you take a test, and then it pass. And you say, okay, you're certified as Singaporean. Chinese and that. Yeah, culture doesn't pass down that way. But the truth is, whichever way it's passed down, uh, sometimes it's almost like there's an unspoken uh, sense. I have some students who, who ask me the question, when their family members pass away, they see everybody grieving, but they are quite nonchalant about it. They're quite neutral about it. Yeah. And, and they, they come and consult me because they are worried. Uh, on one part, they know that they have to grieve, and this is the cultural part. They feel like they are obliged to grieve, that they have to appear sad because otherwise people will be staring at them. And like, why are you not sad? You know, your father just passed away, you should be sad. Yeah? But the bigger question they have for me is, should they be sad? And if they are not, what does it mean? Yeah. So I had this very interesting conversation with, with a very close friend of mine, an ex-colleague. So he, he asked me this. And we were joking about how, I don't know, maybe you are sociopathic? <laughs> you know? Sociopath, they don't feel for the suffering of others. Yeah. But of course, I, I know I feel that he is not a social yeah. But we, we, we would joke about such things. We know each other well enough and we, we have a lot of uh, philosophical debates about such things. Yeah. So there was one time in our regular meetup, uh, we would go to the gardens by the day, and the morning walk, and then we would talk about things. And this was one of the topics that came up. Uh, so yes, there is this uh, unspoken expectation, part of our culture, that we should grieve. In fact, uh, this culture has has expanded to certain expectations where, for example, if your 
uh, if your family member has passed away, a close one, then you are expected not to celebrate Chinese New Year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, from what I heard, Chu San, yeah, the third day of Chinese New Year, is actually reserved for uh, visiting those whose family member has passed away in that period. Yeah. So usually, traditionally, according to what I heard from my parents, Chu San, that day, people would go out. People would not go family visiting. Yeah. But these days, nobody knows or can. Yeah. But that's the tradition. Because Chu San is for when uh, those whose family member has passed away to do visits. Yeah. Uh, in fact, this recent Chinese New Year, I was invited to a family uh, to, to, to talk to them. Because in that family, in the span of uh, one or two weeks, two of the, two of the family members passed away. When I did uh, the first uh, visit, it was one or two months back, and uh, one of the father has passed away, and the brother, which is the uncle, yeah, was in uh, was in ICU. And then about a week later, also he passed away. So during the Chinese New Year, I think. Uh, I think it was either Chu, ah, Chu San, yes, Chu San. Yeah. So I had this uh, gathering, and then she picked me up after the gathering and went over to that place. And they shared with me, they said, uh, for them, it was not whether there was a culture, a custom, uh, that oh, if you have the Pepsi, uh, yeah, the Sangsi, uh, if you have a dad in the family, then you don't celebrate Chinese New Year. It's not so much whether there's such a custom. They say, is that you know, even even if if people come and visit, are you in the mood to say happy New Year? You're not happy. Yeah. So in the in the conversation with them, um, I came to appreciate that perhaps some of this custom is not so much a restriction, but it's a deep appreciation for the loss of the family member. That when you you just lose a family member, you you are not in the mood to have any celebration. Not so much that you cannot celebrate, but you probably are not in the mood. So we allow you not to celebrate. That you, you have this period of mourning that you don't have to celebrate. You're not expected to smile. So we will not visit you to because of knowing that if we visit you, it may put you in a spot to smile or not to smile. Because if we visit you, then you have to put on nice clothes and then you you, you don't feel like putting on nice clothes. If we visit you, you have to entertain us, but you, you're not in the mood. So we we, we understand the difficult times and you can have your time to, to grieve. Yeah. Today I look at the Chinese custom in this way. There are a lot of these practices 
Now, if you don't go through it, you it, it, it feels like it is a ridiculous taboo, pantam, <laughs> you know. Actually, I sometimes wonder, pantam. What is this? What is that Chinese character for pantam? I only know that it's called pantam. Huh? It's a Malay word. Oh, it's a Malay word. What does it mean? Is it a Malay word? Yes. So what does it mean? Yeah, it's a Malay word. And what does it mean? Because there are a lot of words that we borrow from Malay language, and we, we use it for so many generations, actually just two. I'm only the second generation. My father was born in Singapore. My grandparents are from China. And already we, 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 we forgot how to use many words. Uh, we say Kaolin, but it's a Malay word. The proper Hokkien word is Kekon. I, I sort of rediscovered that because when I took Japanese, then we learned that it's Kekon. Not really. Hey, uh, I think I have heard something similar before. Kekon. Kekfan uh, Cantonese. Kaolin is, is actually Malay. But we have even changed the tone to sound Hokkien. Kaolin, Kaolin. So now you know. It's actually not Hokkien. Pantang is abstainers. And taboo. It's a taboo. Abstainers or taboo. Since for the longest time, I always think Pantang is Hokkien. So it's a Malay word, which means taboo. So we are using it in the right way. Yeah. Uh, Malay is a standard language, so some of the translation might not be very accurate. But For sure. Yeah. Yes. Because problem in Bali as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, um, as much as it's seen as a taboo, but perhaps there's a more uh, sensitive angle to it. That it's not simply about what cannot do, but you know that the person would not be in the mood anyway. So how should we deal with it? Yeah. How should we face it? Uh, last week, when we look at uh, facing our own mortality, uh, we learned that it's not something whether you want to face it or not. Whether you want to face it or not, it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Reality is very strange. Reality is a co-hearted Hearted teacher. Yeah. It doesn't care about your opinion. It doesn't care about your preference. If it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. Yeah. But how about our loved ones? Especially it's the same thing. Yeah. Whether you want to face it or not, when the conditions are right or wrong for that matter, uh, they, will, they will go. In a way, I don't have an answer to tell you how to face it. Because as I've shared with some of you before, uh, years back, when I was in, when I was still in university, uh, there was once I dreamt that my mom passed away. I cried in my dreams. I cried so hard, I woke up crying. Yeah, I cried. 
and I woke up with tears in my eyes. And I quickly called my, my mom. Uh, she was quite surprised because she knew that her son didn't wake up so early. <laughs> so it was six plus seven. Yeah, yeah. In the morning, I woke up and then quickly called her. And then she's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, what happened? And I, I told her what happened. I told her about my dream. Then she paused for a while and she said, I'm so good here. I'm off my tea. There was probably a, a certain theme of, uh, I don't know whether you can call that bittersweet. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't call her to make her feel good. I called her really because of my, how I felt. That I was concerned. What if it really happened? Some years later, uh, there was once I was in US in the monastery. I dreamt that my father passed away. Yeah. I also cried. But then I was in US, didn't have the luxury of just picking up the phone and calling my parents. I'm exactly do that. Hanzong and all, but also because there's no dedicated line for myself to call. <laughs> so I told my mom when I went finally managed to get her on the phone. Yeah, and she told me, no worries, it's, it's okay. So whenever I visit families whose uh, is either grieving over their, their loved one's departure or I visit a, their home or the hospital where one of them is seriously ill. I will tell them about this. I'll tell them about how even I myself would cry. So very nice to tell you not to cry. I don't have to ask you, I shouldn't have to ask you whether you will cry if, you, if your loved one passed away. If you cry, don't, don't feel ashamed of yourself, don't feel bad about it. If you don't cry, you shouldn't feel that you are crazy as well. Because I've, I've known, I've seen many, many students, many families, when I arrive and then talk to them. Some of them actually share with me that they, they don't know why they are not crying. And then maybe a week later, maybe two weeks later, like maybe after everything is settled, then they just break down. Because that's what sometimes we do. Sometimes our our adrenaline kick in. Sometimes our uh, the, the part of us 
there's a part of us that, that knows that you have to be strong during that period. It, it kicks in. And then you just stay firm and resolute and uh, some would say putting out a front, but it's not a front that you want to put up, really. It's just uh, almost a, a natural reflex, you know? Where when something bad happens, we, we just tell ourselves we have to bite the bullet and soldier on. So whether you cry or not, don't take yourself away. But sometimes when I go to meet families, I'll end up making them laugh. And that's why that's not when I ask you, if you see two groups, one laughing, one crying, which one do you think feels closer to them? You can never tell really. And because I don't go in, you go there and entertain them. Yeah, that's not my aim. Uh, I will talk to them, uh, sometimes at length, if they have the time. Uh, some people feel that I'm very low, so <laughs> can go on and on for two, three hours. Uh, it's not my two, three hours. It's not that I want to be long it. But sometimes people need time to process everything. You need time to process the loss to make sense of it. Yeah. Because my father and mother, they are still around. But you know, there was one day, I was over at my sister's place. And then uh, my dad is uh, over at his place. They, they stay very near. My sister, Specifically wanted to stay nearby. So one in long, 33, one in 35, and they are, they are back to back. From their kitchen, you can throw things at each other. <laughs> so my, my father's place, they actually installed a CCTV, yeah, those uh, RT webcam thing, yeah, at the living room, so that they can monitor and make sure that my dad is okay, because my dad is having dementia. And then, that day I was uh, over at my sister's place and I was joking about how hey, sorry, what did mom? Like, later on when, we, when mom go over and then settle his lunch or something, then after he go off right, and we look at the, the camera, and then you see him sitting that days a bit, then after all you see him look around and once everybody is going to just behave normally, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Two things. This gave me an idea. I want to do a, a mini, a mini thirty-second clip. Because the moment I said that, I realized something. I realized that, yeah, how how I wish this is true, you know. We won't be angry with him for putting out a show. We'd be quite happy that he's putting out a show. And that 30 second clip will, will, will have this scene and then blurt out with the words, don't you hope they're just putting out a show and then fade out. But dementia is real. 
You're not making it. And I'm wondering, just dementia, and I, I'm having trouble, trouble processing it. You know? And and once in a while, you will you will appear to be quite lucid. So I wonder, for those whose loved one has passed away, how many times they wake up in the morning? Will they wake up in the morning and wish that it was just a dream? And wish that it was just a mistake? That the loved ones is, is actually alive and kicking? Since the Buddha's time until now, there has been many advances in technology. Advances that is beyond our wildest dream, beyond the dreams of maybe not ours, but the dreams of our forefathers. Today, after a person has passed away, you can still see the person through the videos that you may have captured. After this talk, everybody <laughs> start capturing each other. <laughs> I sometimes wonder. Whether all these means of capturing our loved ones will help us cope better with grief or make it worse. Because at least people in the past, after that their loved one has passed away, that's it. We just don't see them anymore. Then at some point people come out with very realistic painting and then they look at the painting. But that's that. But now you can you can find yourself, you know just mewling over the, the video. But when it happens, it happens. Yeah. I've shared with many different individuals, different angles to look at it. I myself, I even once reflected on, on my mother impermanence and emptiness. And I'll tell you, when I did the reflection of, of my mother through emptiness, uh, I totally freaked out in the meditation seat. I remember it was one afternoon in a, during our sitting, sitting there. And in our, in our tradition, we'll do uh, Standard Anapanasati, and then we'll do reflection, contemplation. We'll do, we'll do these two sets and uh, rotate between these two. So there was one set where I did contemplation of emptiness and then reflected on my mother. And as I did that reflection, oh, I totally freaked out. Because as I reflected, I came to the logical conclusion that even as she is alive and kicking, 
Now bear in mind this is years back. Okay. Now even as she's alive and kicking, when she was much younger, she probably sounded slightly differently from how she sounded like now. And the way she sounds like is really the result of a collection of conditions that is not just about her, but through her interaction with a multitude of people. A plethora of factors and conditions that come about to have that voice. To have that manner of speaking. But if I consider myself, the reason why I pronounce often and schedule is because of my sexual geography teacher. No kidding you. My sexual geography teacher, not English teacher. Similarly, while I do not know the detailed factors for her, I would reckon that similarly there are different factors. And the important thing is that at some point, factors and conditions will cease and the so-called mother that I know will not exist. In Buddhism, we say that whatever coming in print coupled with the mental states would compel and drive and condition a new, a new state to arise. A new state which is not totally the same, but not totally lost. A new state which is conditioned by the existing set of conditions, but not the same. And yet not disconnected, nor unconnected. Linked. And in all likelihood, not the same. Then in future life, even if I encounter my mother, I wouldn't recognize her. I wouldn't recognize the face, the look. I wouldn't recognize the mannerism, her, her speech. Yeah. That the very voice that brings me so much comfort yeah, all these years would cease to exist. And I, you know what I did? I did the next best thing I can think of that day. I immediately thought about the, the voice message. Because back in the monastery, we don't have our own mobile phone. Because there's just no signal. So there was these two lines in the monastery that is for common use. And we have two fax machines, one in the, in the dining hall, one in the administrative room. Um, and when uh, when someone wants to look for us, they'll call, they'll leave a voice message, and then uh, the duty monks or uh, yeah, the duty monks would listen to it and then inform the, the rest. Yeah. Or if we are expecting a call, we will check. And then they will tell us when they're going to call. And so in that moment, I, I was like, oh gosh, that's the only recording of my mom's voice. I need to find out how to extract that. <laughs> yeah. The truth is, whether you do this reflection or not, this is what's going to happen. 
whether you face it, you know it or not, when the conditions come and our loved one pass away, the form, sound, smell, taste, touch of that person that we interact with, the mindset of that person, the attitude, and so on, for this life would cease to exist. So for me, at that moment, it was terrifying. But remember, I said logically, logical conclusion. Logical because it's not something that all of us connect on the on the innermost level. But it's something that we, we sit down and we think about it, yeah, we can logically agree this is the case. But it's not something that we would naturally connect with or be able to accept. It's not. I reckon that if I were to have recorded a voice, or for that matter, my father's voice, over the years, then you will probably realize that their voices have changed over the years as well. The old father's voice, the old mother's voice has ceased to exist totally. The way I speak now and the way I speak in the past is different. In fact, on a daily basis, I sound slightly differently. But yet, we, our mind, our brain, our heart, stitch together all this into a congruent whole, and then we hold on to this, thinking that this is one thing. And this is why we fear the loss of it, because we think it's one thing. But it's actually many, many things that arise at different times due to different conditions. because the disparity, the difference between all this collective is so minute. Sometimes it's confusing for us. We can't really tell the difference. And so it feels like it's one. But actually it's not one. It's not one voice really. It's actually a lot of different voices that arise due to conditions. And so, given that, then in future, of course, with different conditions, the voice will be different. But all this will sound very logical, cheap. <laughs> but maybe at a certain level, it may hit you. It may hit you like the way it hit me. If it hits you, for you. Uh, if it doesn't, don't worry. If you do your do a bit more reflection on it, it might just hit you like a like a truck. Yeah. And perhaps you'll be terrified like me. You feel and if you are feeling like how I felt you may feel lost, you may feel frightened. Yeah. And like me, uh, I really went to the kitchen and like, tried to figure out how to 
But then, the, the advantage of being in the environment is, in the midst of that, that I'm sort of sorting things out. Sometimes my mom, in the initial period, sometimes she'll call me once a week. And sometimes, like this week, when she talked to me and then I'm facing some issue, the next week when she called back, she'll continue talking about that issue. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then she's like, I thought you told me about what? I'm like, oh, I really wasn't past that. Yeah. That's the advantage of being in the, in the environment, the Dharma environment. The cycle to to for defilements to arise and then awareness and then resolution is like compressed. Yeah. But not everybody has that. So how? Like all things, uh, no one can do the reflection for us. Only we can do it ourselves. To go back and sit down and think, oh, my mother's going to die, my mother's going to die. <laughs> okay? Yeah. That would be paranoia. But to reflect on how similar to our, the reflection on our own life, to reflect on how uh, that life and death, death is part of the cycle as much as life is. Death. As the Buddha observed, anything that is subject to aging, sickness, and death must have been born. Anything that is born is subject to aging, sickness, and death. This is not something that you can change. Doing such a reflection is not, again, it's not a, a paranoia. But it's a consideration that if that is the case, then we shouldn't take that for granted. We should know that if there is something that you would say to them in due time, then you better say it now. Yeah. And not wait until, wait until you're happy. Because many times we, we, uh, we live our life with that assumption. We go to bed assuming that we wake up tomorrow. We go to bed assuming that others will wake up tomorrow. We go, to, we go out, spend a day outside, whether to work or to come to SGC, thinking that we will go back. Statistically speaking, most of you should go back. Or all of <laughs> But sometimes it doesn't go back on. And that's a fact. Maybe it's a very small percentage. Yeah. But for all those percentage of individuals when such a, an incident, such something like that happened, for them is no joke.
So eventually when we know that our loved one is near, joined near, what can we do? A lot of students, uh, when something like that happened, uh, most people are caught unprepared. Because we have classes to prepare people for exams, yeah, briefing for tours, orientation for school, for work. We don't have a briefing for death. Yeah. We, we don't have a briefing to say, okay, this is what you need to do. Yeah. The parents are passing away, this is what you need to do. Yeah. Um, what can we do for our parents, for example? When they are passing away. I was told that uh, one of the practices to do, and I think this is a Chinese Buddhist thing, not, not a totally Buddhist thing, but a, a mixture between Chinese and Buddhist practices. And it is that towards the last few hours or last few days, uh, there are, there are there are cases where the, the person who is passing away may start to reject food, you know, choose not to eat. Yeah. And then, but there are those who, in the final hour, suddenly want to have a, a big meal, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and some of them, they just have a hunch or a feeling like they're going to pass away. So they reject food and they were asked to bathe and, you know, prepare for the final moment. And then it is said that in the last few hours, uh, they may start to lapse into unconsciousness. And sometimes, and this is as I heard, huh? if you go and search Sutra, you probably cannot find it. Okay? This is what I heard, that the person who is passing away may, may stick out the tongue a bit. Like, you know? Or, or if they are lucid, they may even say that, oh, they, they need some water. I don't So, uh, in the, I think this is more Chinese. And the custom is that then the family members will take turn to, to feed uh, them some water. Very important, small teaspoon. Don't just pour water, okay? Otherwise, you will bring forward the... <laughs> <laughs> just one teaspoon will do. Yeah. And then drop a few drops. Yeah, take time to do that. The significance, um, what is the significance here? The significance is to to serve your parents or your elder in the final moment. Yeah. To act, to to do your due uh, diligence, your due uh, IT towards your parents. But then if you think about it, if that is the case, in, in a way, it should be a reflection on how we should be treating them while they are alive. Don't wait until that final moment, hey, my turn, my turn. While they are alive, we should be serving them, feeding them. Many of the kids, who attend SGC? So what's quite important. We should be serving them, feeding them, or at the very least, or, or at the very yeah, while they are alive, we should be serving them, feeding them, 
or at the very least not pissing them off too much. Oh yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> Many of the children here, you would recall how I would ask them whether they pour water for their parents. Yeah. On a daily basis, serve your parents with a glass of water. If your parents are still around and you are staying with them, offer them some water. And please don't go and ask the minna. It's not the maid's father or mother, okay? It's your father and mother. Okay? Yeah, and many parents are very nice to their children. Yeah? Then I ask the children to offer, then next week when they come back, and I ask them, did you offer? No. Why? My parents say no need. So please, uh, if I tell your, your kids to do it, please let them do it. Many parents, they say are very nice. Very nice parents. Don't do trouble with the kids. Then when they grow up, come and complain to Sibu. How my children don't do anything for me? Oh, because when they are young, you know, small little thing, you don't let them do. Yeah. You need to inculcate them then to let them, you know, experience some things can, cannot be taught, you know. You need to let them just do it. Yeah. To serve to serve others. If we cannot even serve the very true person who is responsible for our life, who do you want to go and serve? You don't serve our, your parents, and then you want to go and be a volunteer in South Africa. You want to go to Myanmar to go and build, build toilet there, build hospital there. That is good, but please serve your parents first. Since, since how many years ago? Since 10 years ago, 11 years ago, or 12 years ago, when I came back, I've been sharing the views and I tell, I've been telling them how much you give to your parents, that is up to your ability. But don't just give them a credit card and ask them to go and buy things themselves. Spend time with them. Spend, just spend some time with them. You may be busy from Monday to Friday we work, but at least one of the weekdays you should have dinner with them. And at least one of the weekends you should spend time with them. Maybe not all weekends, but at least you know every other weekend. A lot of Singaporean parents are uh, actually crying inside. Because when they bring their kids up, uh, they wish, they hope, they spend all the time and resources give their children the best of everything. Because many, many of many Singaporeans, especially the those in the maybe 30, 40s and above, um, some may feel like, oh, that their own childhood is not as ideal. They are grateful, but not as ideal as it can be. So they hope to give their children the best of everything. As far as material is concerned, they have succeeded. And then, when the children grow up, woe be upon them if they are successful. Because the more successful they are, then the lesser time you have with them. This is the irony of Singapore family life. If your children is not successful, then you fret. If your children is successful, you also fret. There's no way around it, you know. Because if your children are successful, chances are they'll be busy. 
minimally busy. Uh, at a minimal level, they will be busy. And increasingly, there are many positions that require them to fly around. Whether with Singapore as the regional HQ or as a satellite. Almost all professional positions have required them to fly around. So I've been telling you, spend, spend that time. Don't wait until they are old, don't wait until they are their final moment. Then we serve that water. That act of serving, uh, some people may look at this as a superstition or what. I don't see it that way. We don't have to see it that way. It's a reminder that we should serve our parents. To give them comfort that, oh, in my final moment, my children are here to serve me. That they care for me. I mean, if you think about it, one teaspoon of water was a big deal. It's, the, it's really the thought that counts. To know that your, your family member is there caring for you. How much comfort that is. So to me, just as they are passing, so should we serve them while they are alive. Usually I would also do a prayer for them. We will recite the Great Compassionate Mantra and also the Heart Sutra. My session is usually quite lengthy, but not the chanting. It's the sharing that goes on quite a bit. But there's one part where I will lead the family to do a mutual repentance. In the Buddhist monastic tradition, when monks or nuns go to visit a monastery, after staying for one day, two day, three day, seven days, no matter the duration. At the end of it, they will take leave from the Sangha and they will do a group repentance. Those who are leaving will, will pay respect to the Mahasangha and then they will repent for any misgiving, repent for any uh, uh, wrong that they may have done inevitably. To the Mahasangha and ask for repentance. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then the, the community would also likewise uh, will, will give uh, forgiveness and also seek for forgiveness depending on, like if let's say the, the Sangha is senior, usually it's not the other way around. So if we extend that practice to our lay community, when our parents or loved ones is passing away, then it's good to make peace one final time. And this is what I will lead them to do. To do, I will recite the verse. Uh, in this life, through body, speech and mind, intentionally or unintentionally, we may have heard or harm our parents, I hereby sincerely confess and repent. And with each verse, then I'll ask them to repeat after me. 
uh, usually use the language that they, uh, which most of them understand, because that's the whole point. Uh, if I were to recite in Pali and then they just recite yeah, but they don't know what they're reciting. So I either recite in, say this in Chinese, uh, in Mandarin, or in English, and after each, each time, then I'll ask them to think about the past, that we may have done some, some things that annoy our parents. You know? But to, and, and we may still, you know, sometimes, you know, even after the fact, we may still feel that we are correct, that they are wrong. That we did the correct thing. Why should I ask for forgiveness? You know, but at that final moment, we should have enough of a heart. I mean, there may be some people who feel like, no, well, I mean, then so be it, you know. But it's a, it's a good opportunity to take that time, to take that chance to, to make peace, to ask for forgiveness. But what's even more important is the other way around. Because sometimes when a person is passing or has passed away, we tend to just want to talk about that good. And we should. But besides that, I will remind them that your father, your mother, your grandparents, they are not perfect beings. They are unenlightened. And as a result, sometimes the decisions they make, the choices they take, the actions they, they carry out, may not be right, may not even please you, may even hurt you, may make you frustrated, make you so earth. It is not that they are perfect, that's why we are happy with them. It's not that they are, they are you know, enlightened beings. It's precisely because they are unenlightened that we need to have forgiveness for them. The recognition that, yes, like us, they are not enlightened. And so we want to send them off, so to speak, with their mind at peace, to let them know that it's okay. You know, no matter what. It's okay. We, we, we all forgive you. To give them a peace of mind. So I'll repeat the first verse three times and then the, the other three the other verse three times as well. So this is something else I'll be tempted to do. Uh, this is usually the final part, followed by the dedication. But if the person is uh, has not passed away, uh, then I will also ask them to write down a list of things that the person has done, but focus on the good things, the wholesome deeds, the kindness. Yeah. And while in the, maybe in the last few days or hours, the person who is ailing, who is not well, when they are lucid, to talk to them, to remind them of the kindness that they have shown others, to remind them of the wholesomeness in them, 
And if they have taken refuge, to remind them of the refuge. Or if they can pass away with their mind anchored on the wholesome deeds that they have done, then it would spur the wholesome seeds to strengthen and brighten. spend hours talking to people, you know, every time I go. I, I tell, I told those who asked me, I said, I also don't know. Yeah. And sometimes I actually tell the family, I don't know what to tell you. Being sincere and honest, I think that's most important. Don't try to go there and try to, wow. <laughs> because they can feel the difference. And many times when I, uh, the f- one of the first things I tell them is it's not easy. Yeah. And to me that is perhaps even more important to them than others that they hear from somebody who knows that it's not easy. that actually uh, describe the seven days 
yeah, in the Chinese Mahana tradition, in the Tibetan tradition. This is what I would sometimes recommend to families. I would recommend for them to minimally observe the five precepts for say 100 days or 90 days, three months. Uh, and if they can, observe uh, vegetarian diet. And some of them ask me, so how long? Are you? And I say, how long do you want to care for our parents? Others would ask, so must we burn houses, burn your paper? <laughs> I wrote an article in my blog years back. I think the title is of uh, of rights and riches and burning houses and hungry ghosts or something. Yeah. You see, all these acts of burning paper, please. If you have a death in the family and there are some relatives who want to fold paper money, please, that is not the time for you to go in and say, I don't need to burn <laughs> Yeah, The education should be done before that, not when that happens. Because by that time it's a bit too late. I once was invited to a family a week, when and specifically invited to discourage the mother and aunties to do the paper uh, paper money offering. But when I arrived and I saw them folding, I greeted them and I sat down and I said, "Oh, see you And they shook each other. They thought, <laughs> But you know what I told them? I said, <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> And my student, like, huh? <laughs> invited me to try to dissuade them. And then I sit down and say, Ho. You see, the moment I said, Ho, their eyes open up and they were ready to talk to me. If I sit down and say, this is no need to do four. What are they gonna do? Maybe they may stop <laughs> for that few moments. For that one hour like that. After that, after that I'm gone, they will continue. Plus complain about me. <laughs> and whatever I say in the one hour, they will not listen. Whereas when I said ho oh, oh, they immediately feel like oh this is okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> then after that, then they are open to hear what I have to say. Then I told them, you you do this to try to benefit your your husband. Then I said, that's one way to follow up. That can really benefit him even more. You know? And they go, <laughs> if right that's why I say don't need to follow, then they will not even want to talk to me. But then, then I say there's another way. Then you believe, huh, how? Oh. Then I feel that each time when you fall, you you chant Amitabha inside your mind. Ah, then power. <laughs> or then they, oh. and I'm not lying because if they if they do that and recite 
some Buddha's name, at least they are not, you know, you know how many times during the week you go there and people eating peanuts and I later hit young, some insomnia, I think about this, which Jim Bo, what? Then they start gossiping, I think by Buddha, Lord, some of them. Or then many times it ends up becoming gossip. But if you just go in and say, cannot gossip, cannot fool this one, who cares about you? Especially if you're not a monk. If you're a monk, they, they just out of respect, you know, don't go for the half an hour. After that, they complain about you and then. Like, Besides, you are big. Good, 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 So, we are to some extent use some wisdom. I told some youth about eight, nine years ago. They were quite adamant about not folding the paper money. But at the same time, one of the year for Vesak Day, they had this four lotus <laughs> campaign. Uh, you were part of the youth at that point in time. And then they even got managed to get non Buddhists to fold. A lot of secondary schools, they, they take magazine, they fold the lotuses, you know. So when they wanted me to comment about the folding paper money, I asked them, I said, how about the lotuses you offer? Is that a Buddhist practice? Which sutra do you see the Buddha say, four lotuses? No. It is your mindset. What happens in your mind? What kind of view you have when you are doing that action? If, because when they fold the lotuses, it was a symbol of loving kindness and compassion, and they did this to, to uh, as an expression of that, to bridge inter-harmony, interfaith harmony, then you can say that this is a religious practice, this is a Buddhist practice. And if we can do that for paper lotuses, why can't we do that for Kim Jong? Now bear in mind, for the records, I'm not encouraging people to learn more and more and more. Yeah? I'm saying there are those who still can't get over that. And this is the way for them to breathe. Yeah? You take that away, they don't have anything to keep them busy. They pussy not you know. Yeah, the mind go all over the place. You get them to do, then at least they can be over here, few sad a bit, then four, 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 cry, then wipe off. Yeah. And it is this, this is a very psychological thing, you know. To allow them to participate in something, to do something for the departed. This is a very important part of grief. You take that away, the, they don't feel that connection. Then that grief is going to find a way to surface somewhere else. So, when we go back, take a good look at your father and mother. Sit down with them. Hold their hand. Asian parents, I don't know about, I think younger generation is quite common. But my generation, we don't hold our parents' hands, except when we are toddler. So there was one day, I sat down with my father in the kitchen. My mother was cooking and he was going on and on talking with me. Then I went inside, I asked him to sit down. And I sit down with him. Then we tried his hand, and he is like, 